I have nothing funny to say at this part of the lightning round question. In honor of the raid, too, what's a movie that crosses the gore line? Uh, I, I'm Katie Rich, and I walked out of a festival screening of I Saw the Devil because life is too short to even find out the reason for all that punishment. Ooh, I am Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with the 2008 Rambo sequel called Rambo because it was too real and too silly, and there were too many bullets. And I'm David Ehrlich, and I'm going to go with James Gunn's Slither because it's one of those movies that you can actually smell through the screen, and it did not smell good. <laughs> Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine, too, eh? Good. Then, well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 16, for Tuesday, March 25th, 2014. <laughs> Yeah, so Katie and I both live extremely boring lives, so I think this past weekend we both stayed in on Friday nights and watched conspiracy thrillers from the 70s. We have I... to. We rely on movies to give us the excitement <laughs> in our lives. Yes. Yeah, so what's what's really happening out in the world? Well, I'll never know because I'm watching movies about that. From the um, past. I, I caught Three Days of the Condor, Sidney Pollack's 1975 thriller with Robert Redford. Much, uh, you know, I think I returned, I had seen it in film school years ago and, and came back to it because everyone's talking about the, the connection between Condor and Captain America, the Winter Soldier, which there is one. So you may not want to revisit this film soon because it, it's... It's cribbing a lot, uh, and it might be a spoiler. Uh, but uh, and Katie, what what did you catch? Uh, I watched the Manchurian Candidate, which uh, I had DVR'd from t uh, Turner Classic Movies and had never managed to see. And I also never saw the remake, so there were actually some surprises in, ta in there for me, which was very pleasant with a movie that old. With with my girl Angela. Oh yeah, my girl Angela. Like she's she's doing a lot of acting <laughs> in that in movie. But I'm sorry, would, I'm sorry. I would say even woman. though she's kind of acting like crazy in it, she's really good in it. I don't know, I I enjoyed it immensely. But not for any particular reason related to Captain America the Winter Soldier. It was just fair, on my DVR. Fair enough. Um well it got what got me thinking, and David is probably going to steer this uh conversation in the right direction because all I could think about with three days of Condor of the Condor is how much it really ties to what's happened in the last 10 or 15 years of political history, especially with the intelligence community and its seemingly uh, inept practices, not knowing what other parts of the intelligence community are doing at any given time. And for anyone who's seen Three Days, it's very much about kind of shadow governments working inside and, um, you know, Robert Redford getting caught up in a conspiracy that he has to untangle and figure out why, what's, what's really going on. And it ends up tying a lot into Middle Eastern conflict and America's hunt for oil and a lot of the conspiracies that still kind of plague America today and maybe even more so, you know, Edward Snowden and spying and just like, you know, uh, all, all this, all these ideas that continue to propel our conversations about the intelligence community and challenge us into what we believe and what we kind of take for granted. Um, now, Katie, I don't know if you had similar thoughts about Manchurian Candidate, which seems a little more 
fantastical. Yeah, it's a little more fantastical. And for me, it was more just like, I mean, it's really gripping and really fascinating. And, you know, it's basically a race against the clock kind of thriller toward the end. But I liked it for uh, kind of putting me in the headspace of this world of the 60s in which it set that seemed like something that could happen. Like where there was such paranoia about all of these different countries conspiring to take us over. And, you know, it's something that, you know, with the Obama, Obama and his birth certificate, like, you know, like, is he a Manchurian candidate for Kenya? Which doesn't make any sense at all. But I mean, they're <laughs> like, how did, these... that, how did that turn out? Was he? <laughs> I mean, I think we I don't think, know yet. I think you can look at Obamacare and make your own decisions there. Wow. Mm. Um, but, you know, par- conspiracy theories come from somewhere. And it's really interesting to watch a Hollywood movie that kind of captures that attitude and was being presented to a country at a time when, like, more than, you know, people would come out of that being like, well, that probably couldn't happen. But it might. You know, there's just enough of a seed of disbelief that it seems possible, which seems like Three Days of the Condor kind of plays off of, too, even though it's a bigger conspiracy that might happen in real life. I guess the more we learn, the more it seems possible. I just think it's odd that it. I had to go back to a film from 1975 to find real commentary about the problems that we're facing today or with our inability to rely on the government and believe in them, that we, we fear what might be going on behind closed doors. No. I, don't, I don't know if I see a lot of films today really tackling that material, especially because it's all happening right now and it has been for the last decade. Uh, plenty of time for people to kind of comment on this through fiction. Uh, I don't know if salt is enough for me. No, do you mean specifically in like the grand conspiracy schematic or like, I mean, I think about Zero Dark Thirty, which I think is a really interesting balance of questioning the government and kind of depicting this real victory. Well, I think it's depicting something true and being brutally honest about it. um, But it does. I mean, I don't think it's showing them as heroes. This was a huge debate when Zero Dark Thirty came out, if it's um, a proponent of torture or if it's if it's. suggesting that they were in the right the entire time it's it's showing multi multiple sides of this conflict and the people who um made it you know solve the problems quote unquote but i don't know if it's really conspiracy driven no no definitely not challenging but um, but i just meant in terms of sowing seeds of doubt about the government i don't think it's that doubtful do you i mean it's i guess it's scary to think what they could be doing but it's not about the american people it's still about like how america's handling their international conflicts, not really how they're treating the American people to really to kind of put the people versus the government. So you're looking for the NSA movie that we don't really have yet. <laughs> I am looking for yes. I'm, I don't need an Edward Snowden biopic per se, which is probably something we'll get, um, or even you know the Fifth Element, or not the Fifth Element. <laughs> the Fifth Element's a great film too. The Fifth, uh, the fifth Estate, estate um, where we're where we're kind of turning these people into heroes or uh, troubled heroes. Uh, I, I think that's the wrong direction. That's not what Condor is. This is not a true story. It's something to kind of stir the imagination and at least remind us that we should be aware that the government could be up to something or that they're in a power and a position to do that. Well, I don't well, think fiction is really challenging that concept right now. What I was saying to you uh, sort of along these lines before, before we started recording was, uh, well, one, I'm sure you wouldn't necessarily have to go back to the 70s to find a film that, you know shed a certain light on what's happening today <laughs> but it, it, it it's nice to know that three days of the condor struck that nerve uh but i think it's just going to be interesting whether it's in regards to the cold war or uh you know other things that are sort of um relics of the 20th century that have strong emotional ties to uh, human behavior in general and will you know in some way shape or form can perpetuate themselves in the 21st century uh that like the movies have only existed for you know barely 100 years and we are going to be 
you know, you could probably have said this for the last 20 or 30 years or so, but I think that like really in the 21st century, we're going to see for the first time the this vast array of movies that we can look back on uh, as sort of uh, – not mirrors necessarily, but prisms through which to look at what's happening in the present to see how we have depicted these things in our fictions and in our documentaries um, over the past 100 years, what these events have in common uh, with you know things that have happened before. And also I think that uh, it will be really interesting to see how vividly people's takes and understandings of older movies are changed by current events, which, again, seems like a really banal thing to say and might be all told. But uh, I think that there, um, there's definitely going to be – I think with so many movies, with such a rich history, with things like Three Days of the Condor, uh, I, I, the further we get away from them, the more interesting our, uh, and dynamic our cinematic output is going to become. Do you, do you think that – a movie about political conspiracy can be so fictionalized that it will not plant a seed in people's minds like that. I'm thinking a movie like Eagle Eye, which may be the last real kind of spy conspiracy movie that I could think of um, beyond salt, which I already mentioned. That seems so fantastical that we can't believe it. I don't know if movies today can be that gritty or, or, on the scale that it needs to be. I mean, Condor is not a big movie, but here's a movie that's whisking us around New York trying to solve this mystery. Amazing New York City photography, but really feels dynamic and big in terms of the scope, and we really feel the presence of the government. So you need a certain scale movie to do it, um, but it still needs to be grounded enough that we can believe that real people are intruding into right. real and lives. Eagle Eye is a very, very bad movie, uh, and I think that is really the biggest obstacle here, but I do think that it could be helpful 50 years from now to have an idea as to like you know i'm not saying that it was tapped into the pulse of what was happening and what everybody was thinking at the time but um you know i think to look back and be like oh these were things that maybe not the general public but at least steven spielberg and his uh you know the people he was willing to fund cared about and thought were relevant at the time these fears of uh, technology imitating humans and and uh, you know taking over our lives. Well, even Minority so Report is a movie that seems to come up a lot today. Like we're mm-hmm. already hitting the Minority mm-hmm. Report technology and the intrusion of pre-crime uh, sleuthing. That seems to be really a, a conversation point, which I'm surprised. Only four or twelve years later. But yeah, maybe I mean, maybe that's yeah. maybe the technology films, these sci-fi films from the '90s and two, early 2000s, are really what's going to. Well, it's like there's a Hitchcock – one of my least favorite Hitchcock films, uh, just purely out of the entertainment value you get watching it now, is Spellbound. And that's because Spellbound is completely dependent on horribly outmoded psychology. You look at it now as a citizen of the 21st century, um, and you think that it's utterly ridiculous because it is. It has a very flawed, uh, antique – understanding of how the human mind works uh and you know i think there are a lot of hitchcock films that that work because they're just sort of good storytelling and don't depend on that but um i think spellbound leans it just crosses that line and leans a little bit too heavily on its psychobabble uh to be relevant now and you know but at at the same time like i mean and you know i I will broadly lump eagle eye into that as well i mean i think at the same time you look at it and have a good understanding as to because um, Spellbound was a hit, <laughs> how people how people thought about things that you know back then, to how they uh, 
how this sort of did play into their fears. And now the one upside of our overwhelming volume of film criticism that we have will be uh, being able to look back and see not just what the movie makers were tapping into at the time, but how successfully they did it. I, I just wanted to say that I feel like the Bourne films kind of fall into what you were describing. It's too much. The breadth of information that's nonsense. It doesn't matter. They're not calling out real governments. It's all like made up part or side projects or, you know, independent organizations. It's all cluttered and they're such a mess by the third, by the fourth film, by chems. We, we're just like ah. imploded this franchise. It makes absolutely no sense. And we're not chasing any tangible concept we're not really taking government to task for you know breeding warriors or having these programs they're not revealing to the general public to it's, uh, it's fantasy in defense of paranoia that can come in the form of slightly absurd things um scandal does really interesting things with the paranoid thriller genre it, the show is crazy and it depicts a lot of things that could never ever happen but it has schemes on the plot of the government to do really dangerous things and people train I mean, it's kind of a born way people trained as these super soldiers but i mean i don't think the political thriller genre is dead entirely because between that and house of cards it's doing some really interesting stuff on television well i hope with uh Captain America the Winter Soldier. I don't know if people are going to enjoy it. David and Katie, you guys are probably going to see it soon. But it certainly yeah. makes an attempt to uh, discuss these themes again, of course, on the giant Marvel tentpole-sized mm -hmm. uh, stage, which may kind of overwhelm and consume those concepts. But I must say... It's a tense little. It's a tense little thriller at times. Yeah. Um, from Marvel Studios. But it's no. It's no Three Days of Condor, and I don't think it's uh, a Manchurian Candidate either. Two amazing films. That well, uh, did you? Where did you? You watched it on Turner Classic Movies, so it's playing yeah, on TV I, all the time. I actually, it was my first movie from uh, Netflix discs. So <laughs> these movies are out there. Watch them. Wow. Noah coming to theaters this week and the Bible once again proving itself as a never-ending source for movie content. We wanted to talk about some biblical stories that maybe have or have not been uh, movies at some point that, that we would like to see as movies. And uh, I guess I'll go first since I'm already talking. Uh, I know that Jesus's crucifixion has been many movies at this point, but the part of that story that I've always really liked is about Peter and how Jesus tells him that before the cock crows three times, uh, before the cock crows the n that next morning, Peter will deny that he knows Jesus three times. And uh, it comes true exactly as Jesus predicted it. And uh, I always liked the dramatic timing of it, that as soon as he said the last one, the cock crows. And I think in the background of this very well-known story, you've got this fascinating story about a guy kind of figuring out his place within this world that has, you know, he was being bold by following this disciple and then really chickened out. And I think that is a fascinating story about a coward that, that I would is like in, to see. That's my, one of my favorite parts of Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh, yeah, that is a good part of Jesus Christ Superstar. But it doesn't get its own movie. It no. And I think Judas kind of gets all the um, all the attention as the person who betrayed Jesus. And I think Peter is far more interesting. Um, David? Well, I'm going to go with the Book of Job because what do I love more than human suffering? Nothing. Uh, and fortunately for me, there are two other Jews who uh, have a lot – 
you know, more of a foothold in the filmmaking world than I do and have earned it, uh, who also seem to love the Book of Job because it seems like all of their movies are you – know, not all of them, but a lot of their movies are one way or another similar to it, which are the Coen brothers, of course. Uh, I think Inside Lewin Davis is probably the finest adaptation of the Book of Job we're ever likely to You don't think a see. serious man is the finest adaptation? Oh, no, a serious uh, – no, you know what? You're right. A uh, serious man is uh, – and, of course, you know, has much more uh, overtly biblical roots as well. Um uh, that is actually probably the movie that I meant to say in the first place. Uh, but, <laughs> but there are certainly elements of Job's story, I think, in, in all of the Coen brothers' protagonists, even when they are uh, more overtly borrowing from uh, you know Homer and whatnot for like, oh, brother, where art thou? Um, they they do uh, seem to take a lot of pleasure in the miseries of their characters who are you know looking for looking for God and meaning and inside inside the Davis again, motherfucker. The uh, a serious man is, uh, is I think, such a, a beautiful way of updating it. And I think I'll be really interested to see Noah because I tend not to um, – I tend to be suspect of these very literal adaptations. I understand that Noah has – deviates you know, pretty liberally from the text. But at the same time, it's about you know, this guy you know, however many years ago is building an ark and all the animals are getting on it, etc. Um, and I think that it's usually – much more interesting to see them update these stories uh, and and apply them to different circumstances, but we'll see. You were saying that the Coen brothers like to torture their characters. Uh, I feel like the Bible does. Too. Uh, yeah. The Bible does indeed. Um, you know, it's funny. I just watched John Huston's uh, The Bible in the Beginning, which chronicles the entire Old Testament. Fact, this is to... what happens when your girlfriend goes out of town. I, I know, I know. Um, it was It's horrible. I mean, the Old Testament is extremely boring, but it should be cool, right? Because it has like Noah and the Tower of Babel and Sodom and Gomorrah. It has all sorts of stuff. But I'm going to actually go with a really boring story because I think it should probably be represented represented to uh, on screen, which would be the story of Ruth, the book of Ruth, um, which may not actually have a very good um, – you know, message to send the modern men and women of this planet who would invest in Christianity because it's pretty much about, you know, you should convert to Judaism if you want to marry a Jew. Um, but underneath that, I think Ruth um, is is a fighter for mixed marriages and love who you want to love message. And uh, we need a lady on screen. She should probably, I mean, there's the Bible so dominated by men. Give give a lady the chance. Well, really, I'm, I'm kind of over Jesus, you know. Let's have a uh, just a movie about his crucifixion that's mostly about Peter and Mary Magdalene. And uh, they don't really have anything to do with each other, but both of, the, both of them are Jesus and Mary Magdalene scene. getting it on, you know. Well, that's a, that's a question that has been asked, and uh, maybe we should focus less on that than whatever was on her mind. The Da Vinci Code. Noah coming out on Friday, Darren Aronofsky may not be before more audiences than he ever has been before. Black Swan was a giant hit. A lot of people saw it. I have not seen Noah, but I have a feeling maybe more people will Did have found out Did your parents see Black Swan? My parents saw That's Black Swan. Question. They don't see movies. So. I think my parents saw Black Swan. I don't. Black Swan totally was definitely know. a movie that your parents would see. I was watching some <laughs> old episode of SNL this morning when I woke up, and there was a Black Swan parody on it and i think that you know it's it, you would not have seen uh, another 
Darren Aronofsky parody. Uh, we didn't get the mountain parody. Exactly. The fountain parody that we the world. What's coming out of this tree? Gross. He had never really hit the zeitgeist like he did with the black swan. Yeah. So Darren Aronofsky hit the black the black swan with zeitgeist. He hit the zeitgeist with black swan, and therefore was able to somehow convince Paramount to hand him an unspecified gigantic amount of money to make Noah, which he has said is a passion project of his. I think you know you guys have pointed out correctly that when a director says something is a passion project for their of theirs, sometimes they're Although I believe him when he says he's been like drawing pictures of Noah since he was a kid, imagining it yeah. on the big screen. Because and it really hasn't yeah. been a Noah I movie mean, since uh, John Houston's movie that it, I mentioned last. It's segment. always very telling when a filmmaker has a, uh, a massive hit, especially relative to its relative to its budget, as Darren Aronofsky did. Uh, what they choose to do next. Um, which uh, I think is why this is maybe slightly different than like Sofia Coppola's Little Mermaid project because this just seems like something that she agreed to that could fit her interests or whatever. But it's not like the bling ring was this like took her to the next level as far as yeah. the financing she could get. Yeah. I mean and you know, there's also examples where you have something like Colin Trevorrow directing the next Jurassic Park or Mark Webb taking on the Spider-Man franchise where someone starts off making, you know, in their cases, one indie movie and then immediately get assigned to a giant franchise. I think Noah is different from that. It's definitely a Darren Aronofsky movie. There's a fascinating story in The New Yorker from I think a week or two ago about – Basically, the studio didn't really like his cut. They kept trying new cuts. Audiences hated that cut even more than the one that he turned in. So it is his movie, even if the studio is not all that happy about it. But it's kind of unclear if this is going to be what Darren Aronofsky needed, like if being handed $200 million really suits him. And it makes me think about what happened with Andrew Stanton when he took on John Carter, which is something that people have been trying to make. It was kind of a tough sell. The studio kind of relented to let him do it because he was the guy who made um, Wally and um, – Finding Nemo, and he was kind of over his head and made this movie that didn't really make anybody happy. And I wonder if you guys can think – I have a hard time thinking of examples of directors being given a ton of money to make their passion project and it going really well. And do you, can you guys prove me wrong on this? Going really well. Um, well, I mean Aronofsky seems to be he, – he also – in this same New Yorker profile that you were describing, says that all of the movies he made, has he had a list back in film school about, like, seven ideas he wanted to make into movies. So maybe all of these movies were passion projects. And if that's true, then all of them were pretty successful. <laughs> well, sure, but all, but all of them were movies that he had to really fight tooth and nail to make, as opposed to Noah, which... I'm sure there were all sorts... Of, I mean, I know what you mean. And, you know, he was handed the, uh, the green light to make it. I'm sure there were all sorts of battles that he had never had to face before. Uh, on the once production began, um, but I think you know the most recent example that springs to mind. Uh, although Sophia, I mean, it's it's hard because there are so many different categories of this. It's like Sofia Coppola after Lost in Translation, which was a huge hit, having the the clout to make Marie Antoinette, which for her was a very very expensive movie. They shot it in Versailles. Is you know sort of along those lines. But I think closer to the Aronofsky mold is someone like Christopher Nolan, who mm-hmm. uh, after Memento and it was Insomnia right after Memento. Is that his next thing? Uh, I think so. Uh, I mean, Insomnia was whatever, but the uh, you know, still, yeah, I, I don't think Batman Begins is a particularly good movie, but it's hard to argue that it didn't go well for him. Yeah, and then what especially happened for him is he kind of got the indie, had the indie cloud, made the big movie, then got assigned to a franchise like so many others have done, and then he got to make Inception, which I think you can argue whether or not you like the movie. That is the movie that he wanted to make, and it went incredibly well when he was handed a ton of money. So that's maybe the ideal circumstance for something like this. Mm-hmm. 
and he wouldn't have been able to make it without that giant budget. Yeah, but I mean, it's so. I mean, obviously, we don't want to generalize too broadly and say like this is always a good thing or it's always a bad thing. Um, but you know, I think like there's a movie right now that's opening this weekend in New York. It's actually by the time you hear this, will already have been open for a few days in New York. Called "It Felt Like Love" by Eliza Hittman. I think the movie was made for thirty thousand dollars, and it's very, very good. And uh, which helps, of course. Um, but you know, it certainly has me thinking that uh, you know. Obviously, you couldn't make Noah for $30,000, but if the market just seems to drive certain filmmakers to bigger and bigger places, oftentimes the detriment uh, of the quality of the films that they make, uh, and I think of the detriment of movie culture as a whole because studios get back into that old tentpole philosophy, but they don't have uh, they don't have anything to put under the tent. They just make these giant, giant movies and peg all their hopes on them, and it's like, well, maybe if maybe – if, uh, Darren Aronofsky got this opportunity. I'm not blaming him or anything, but if it was like, you know, why don't I make three $50 million movies? $50. You know, like that. I just think that it's never it, – it, it's a shame that all these filmmakers or so many of them seem – whether they're coming out of the farm system of the American independence scene, uh, like the Colin Trevorrows of the world, or they're Darren Aronofsky seem like they just like, all right, I'm going to take all this money and we go all out and it's – but it's like, just, why not? I mean, if if it's somebody else's money and you can convince them to do it, why do we not? Why would we not want to see that? Like, if I have to watch any sort of spectacle, I'd rather watch one that seems to be coming directly from someone's crazy brain to the screen, mm-hmm. or even, um, God, um, what's his name who did Battleship? You know, his Peter uh, Berg. Peter Berg's passion project. Yeah, and project. The, irony, the irony there is that he made a $200 million movie so that he could be allowed to make a $20 million movie, um, yeah. which is crazy. I mean, he made Battleship so they would let him make Lone Survivor. and they were, I, Which I, went on to make a surprising amount of money, actually. Well, know, I mean, but it still cost... I don't know if it was a $20 million movie. You you may have that fact. I, I, I mean, that's not even... I'm pulling the number out of my ass, but you know, the, uh, you know it's certainly uh, not in the same... Stratosphere as Lone Survivor was made for forty million. Forty million dollars, but budget. that's still a lot of money. I mean, you you might be right, David, that you could break Noah into chunks and still have a pricey movie and multiple of them. But um, I don't know. That's that's still that's still a risk. That's still a gamble to hand money that chunk of money over to someone, and you don't see movies like that get made. And yeah, I, but I'd the iron see like the chance taken. I, I, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, how many of I don't even movies, like Lone Survivor. <laughs> how many of those uh, $200 million movies are ever really worth something? And it's funny, from all the early reports that I've read about Noah, the one thing that it seems everyone, regardless of how they feel about the film, has taken the task is uh, the CG, the things that, um, you know, this, I think the scale is up to snuff, is the general consensus, but there are a lot of things that money is supposed to be there to buy that may not have. Uh, May not have made it. I like the idea that if we're going to see a spectacle, we'd like to see somebody's bonkers spectacle. But I wonder what it is that makes directors who are kind of struggling their way up kind of unable to resist that giant shiny ring of a huge budget. Because like, who wouldn't know? want to? I mean, imagine I, the, sh- the films that people were growing up on. They're just like you and I. I mean, yeah. they're not they're not growing up on 
you know, I, I imagine that five-year-old Darren Aronofsky was not watching films um, similar to Pi yeah. when he was growing up. He was watching Spielberg movies or Kubrick. You know, he was watching 2001. That's every, every director will tell you that 2001 blew their minds when they saw it. And people want to make something on that scale. And today you have to do that. And it's I think that's perfectly reasonable. Who doesn't have that urge to put their fantasies on the screen? It can't be done on a smaller level. He tried on the fountain and it was excruciating. I mean, you can see why Aronofsky would retaliate um, his experience with from his experience on the fountain to something like Noah that seems packageable um, and can his, his crazy ideas can be go undetected. Uh, Although it seems the, like they've been pretty detected. Yeah. Well, now, now they, but the movie's made, who cares if they're detected or not? He's, <laughs> he, he can be one and done. I don't think the man gives a shit. He's going to make more movies, maybe not at the scale of Noah, but it doesn't even matter anymore. Um, you get your one chance and, and you go all out and you do it's it. Funny. it makes but me everyone think wants to like, make their Spielberg movie, I think. It, it makes me think of someone like Woody Allen who, uh, you know, for regardless of whatever else, has – I'm sure I, I, at this point, I you know, of course, I don't think anyone's really offering Woody Allen <laughs> jobs like Noah or anything close to it. But um, there's somebody who's been content to just keep things within the same – Mm-hmm. Sort of well, imagine what Woody Allen was again. growing up on, too. I mean, the stuff he was ingesting as a young person was small-scale comedy. It was radio. It was silence. It, you know, he he still he built up from that. He, he does have spectacle in terms of the stuff he's building off of from his memories. Um, and even Spielberg making, you know, Jaws or Indiana Jones. He's he's riffing on really small-scale serials and things that couldn't bring to life what they really aspire to, and he did it. So then everybody else is riffing on that, and it needs to be bigger. Um, and you want it to be. You want to use modern technology to uh, bring your dreams, your extrapolated versions of these Spielberg movies to life. And I, I think Woody Allen actually does that exact same thing, but on the scale that um, he knows. Hmm. So do you feel like we're going to wind up with Mark Webb and Colin Trevorrow and whoever the hell else getting to go to that level, just getting there through a slightly different route? Do you think that they're going to – Well, it seems like they're taking inception? a detour in some ways. Well, they're they're taking the Christopher Nolan route more than the uh, – which I, I think don't think is- they are because Christopher Nolan made Following and then he made Memento and then he made Insomnia and then he went to Batman. Well, they and- just – skip the first couple steps but i think they see and, how he but, made batman and then got to make inception i mean it doesn't that then look like the best way to be able to get to make your huge movie well i think anybody can make these movies i really do i think that i would never be worried about hearing that an indie director is directing a blockbuster because it's all about collaboration you know you hook your people up with the folks from ilm and you get them a great cinematographer and you know you have frank marshall produce your movie and he's going to tell you how it works and you can go in and make a few decisions and then it's going to come out a blockbuster but you have someone like aronofsky or nolan who cut their teeth on small films understand every ounce of this movie they're making down to the smallest dialogue scene to the smallest insert shot you have fincher making girl with a dragon that too or you know he constantly is in talks for Twenty Thousand leagues from the sea or um rendezvous and rava these huge science fiction projects or you know he directed alien three which was too early for him uh, yeah, he had to scale it down and do small gritty thrillers and then blow himself up because he needs to understand the fundamental – the granular stuff that is going to be involved in making these movies. And to skip it, even when you have the team that's going to make it look like a blockbuster – I mean Mark Webb's the perfect example. 
he uh, uh, amazing spider-man is the disaster and a disaster interesting yeah. i think I mean, that movie's a disaster like like mark webb could be a interesting filmmaker we'll never he know. seems really smart like you sit in a room with him and you believe like man this is gonna be a good movie you really know your shit but i don't i think there's knowing how film works and then there's cutting your teeth and and experimenting on a smaller level with less overhead and yeah mark webb oof. yeah i mean it's it's that thing where it's like you know it, it's it's of course it's hard to say one way or the other this is good or this is bad but so seldom does it end up with the Christopher Nolan situation where, um, you know, at least arguably he has had moments where he's able to take that system that Patches was describing where you have so few choices to make. And actually – I mean I think actually you can't even argue it, especially with Inception, that he has brought his unique autoristic touch to that $200, $200 million movie. Um, and that is something you don't see very often and it remains to be seen at least by us whether or not you know uh, it, no, it feels like a studio product or if it feels like a, an Aronofsky movie. But um, you know, when it's, it's just hard as somebody who wants to champion interesting filmmakers when uh, you see so many of them become consumed by this machine and uh, you know, so few of them are actually able to do anything constructive with it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I don't think that Aronofsky is going to be one of those, which is the, you know, the thing that we can be relieved about with Noah. I think regardless of how that movie does, he's going to emerge still as Darren Aronofsky. He spent long enough, as Patches was saying, cutting his teeth that it's not – I don't think – he's not going to be Mark Webbed and, you know, never be heard from again. Oh, no, because there's not going to be a Noah 2 and 3 and 4. <laughs> but, oh, my God, but what if there were? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what letter in Noah can become a 2, so I don't think it's really going to happen. <laughs> It's just – it's so crazy to think of, of someone like Mark Webb who has this big indie hit with 500 Days of Summer and then gives away a decade or more of his life to making Spider-Man movies. I mean yeah. – Building – he's going to build a great house. I mean maybe, maybe – yeah. I mean you know, I don't know Mark Webb. I don't know if he grew up and was like all I want to do with my life is make Spider-Man movies. Like that could very well be what happened. And that's um, totally legit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean – it's fine. It's just it's uh, it is it's strange. It's just like you wouldn't think that even no matter how much you love Spider-Man movies, uh, you would with Hollywood you know at your mercy, you would want to branch out a little but bit. But wouldn't don't you don't you? I can imagine the intoxicating feel of like watching Terminator and then Terminator Two and being like, man, you can do something with blockbusters, and then being handed Spider-Man and being. Being like, I can do, I can make something out of Spider-Man that's going to speak to audiences, that's going to sweep up kids, and it's it's just going to blow their minds, and really be like, yeah, I will spend ten years of my life making these movies, and someone should because we want uh, the next Cameron, or we want the next Spielberg, or we want the next, you know, we want blockbusters that are good, and people want to take that challenge, and we we groan every time someone respectable signs on to do a huge movie, but we need them to gamble their lives away and their careers in order to hopefully come out with something redeemable. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the spending a decade of your life doing something like that. Like I, um, I did an interview with Brian Singer recently and kind of looked and realized like he has spent essentially 15 years working on X-Men movies kind of on and off and he's made other stuff in between. And you can argue how interesting any of that has been, but that is a fascinating thing to happen for the guy who made the usual suspects. Like how, I mean, I don't. I think in his case, he wasn't really aware of the way that superhero movies were going to start working, where you are married to it for a decade. But 
it's a weird situation. You kind of can't really imagine what film, what kind of filmmaker Brian Singer could have turned out to be had this not happened. Well, we saw Valkyrie. We, yeah, we kind of Yeah, and Jack know. the Giant Slayer. I liked Valkyrie a lot. I kind of want, I kind of hope that when this phase of his life is over, that's the direction he gets to go. Give yeah. us apt pupil two, Brian Singer. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think the greater question is, it's like how much of who a filmmaker is as an artist is determined by uh, commerce and, and like the business interests of the day and how much is determined by uh you know their passion projects and it's you know ultimately sort of impossible to uh divine one way or the other unless you know brian singer does an interview in the future and he's like this is how i felt about doing all these things and this is why i did all these things um it's just one of the realities of film as a whole but uh it's it's a shame and i think that you know, I can cross my fingers that, that we're not really losing any of the great filmmakers to these things because, uh, you know, I didn't, didn't really like 500 <laughs> Days of Summer. But, um, but you know, I think that if the people had that drive in them, they would be making great movies and not Spider-Man movies. Burn. I was just thinking, well, I don't know. This segment might be over. But um, <coughs> someone mentioned very wisely that they would love to see Phil Lord and Chris Miller do an original movie or something that's not based on any sort of property because now they're in talks for Ghostbusters 3 and like yeah. here's two really smart guys who seem to have a visual sense or, or, or can invigorate a movie with ideas visually and uh, script wise and yeah, yet but... they only they're only transforming other people's properties we can't, but at the we same can't time, really see like ideas that's, that's what they do I mean like they right. they are very gifted at giving surprising new life to properties that seem not to have any, you know, have any. Um, and, uh, but will they, will we ever praise them as great filmmakers? The way you're saying, like lose people to that way well, of life, but can, will they I, ever get the, the time of day? That they I deserve? don't know. I mean, I think there are a lot of filmmakers that I'd be quick to call great filmmakers who would not be able to revitalize a, uh, a Lego. Uh, they didn't even revive. I mean, they start a Lego franchise the way that they did. Uh, you know, everybody has their their strengths. And Twenty One Jump Street, I'd argue, is yeah, but I, I it's but it's more of what they do than it is anything to do with the original show. I don't think they're really doing that. They're not taking that much of pre existing material to make that good. Yeah, totally it's true. That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We will be back on Friday to review Noah, as you can probably guess from the conversation we've had in this episode. No, uh, duh. No, duh. We'll review <laughs> Noah. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches, writer of the internet on Twitter at Mr. Patches, throwing all my work up at mattpatches.com. And we also have a website. I don't know if you're aware, but you can comment and provoke conversation there. It's fightingintheworldroom.com. And maybe I should take Dave's duties, too. You, if you really want to start up some shit on this podcast, you should call us, 914-410-6450. We'll play your message. You'll start a conversation. It would be a lot of fun. Trust me. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I am currently a freelance writer around the world uh, of the internet. You can find me, at least this week, for the most part, at the Dissolve. Uh, well, I have a bunch of articles this week. Who knows where I'll appear next week? I certainly don't. And you can find all of us together on the one place I know where we'll be, on Facebook, at Fighting in the War Room. 
I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair's Hollywood or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-A-C-H. You can also find the entire podcast on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R. Many of you are already tweeting at us there. It's very fun. We all see it because we're all on Twitter all day looking for who is talking about us. Uh, You can also go to our Twitter feed to answer this week's lightning round question, which is... In honor of The Raid 2, what's a movie that crosses the gore line? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday. Coming out of